flesh-eating Beruli ulcer cases discovered in in-eastern Melbourne suburbs. That flesh-eating Beruli ulcer is back in Melbourne with some fresh nightmare fuel for you. And how to avoid being infected by gruesome flesh-eating bacteria. These are just a few of the headlines reporting on the cases of Beruli ulcer in Australia. While this sounds very exciting and dramatic, in Australia, patients most often present with a non-healing ulcer that may stimulate much less of a shock factor. Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Dr. Sarah Adamson, and I am an Education and Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute and the Dermatology Fellow at the Royal Women's Hospital. And my name is Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, Medical Educator, and Research and Education Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. My experiences with this bug certainly haven't done justice to what we hear about it in the news. I remember the first time I saw a patient with a Bansdale or Beruli ulcer when I was a plastic surgery resident at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. The young boy had a non-healing ulcer on his leg that had developed weeks after visiting his family's cottage in countryside eastern Victoria, Australia. It was, of course, unusual to have a non-healing wound in a child. So he was investigated for and found to have a mycobacterium ulcerans infection, also known as Beruli ulcer. He was admitted to hospital for antibiotics and eventually for surgical debridement. He luckily remained systemically well throughout the time we saw him. However, it was a long admission requiring involvement of multiple teams, and obviously very distressing to the young child and his family. Strange, chronic, deep, undermined ulcers were first reported in Uganda, and they continue to cause significant morbidity and mortality in parts of Africa. This responsible pathogen, Mycobacterium ulcerans, was first described and named in our home state of Victoria, Australia. The definitive first publication appeared in 1948, a new mycobacterial pathogen of man, first author, pathologist Peter McCallum, in Melbourne, 1948. The causative organism, Mycobacterium ulcerans, was isolated at the Alfred Hospital, which interestingly was only found incidentally as the lab's incubator was faulty and thus incubated the organism at its ideal temperature of 30 to 33 degrees Celsius. Bensdell ulcer, as it was then known, had been early recognised by general practitioners working in the Bensdell region of Victoria in the 1930s and 40s. Today, we are going to sink our teeth into this disease that has made headlines for its claim to eat away at human flesh. We'll be covering how might it present clinically? How common is it? How is it transmitted? And how is it treated? We are very honoured to have Professor Paul Johnson join us today. Paul is a world authority on M. ulcerans, Professor of Infectious Diseases Medicine at University of Melbourne, Researcher and Inaugural Director of the Northeastern Public Health Unit Melbourne. Paul played a fundamental role in Beruli ulcer research, including developing a rapid diagnostic test for Beruli ulcer that is now available worldwide, being part of the WHO Global Beruli Ulcer Initiative, and continues to have an active research program in Beruli Ulcer with colleagues at Monash University of Melbourne, Victoria Infectious Diseases Reference Laboratory, and the Peter Doherty Institute. He also spent time at the Institut Pasteur in Paris and Swiss Tropical and Public Health Institute in Basel working with colleagues on Beruli Ulcer projects. Hello, and it's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us is Associate Professor Alvin Chong a specialist dermatologist at the Skin Health Institute and St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. 
Thanks for inviting me and thanks for joining us, Paul. I'm mainly here to learn, as you are the person that I refer to the most for ML science. Professor Johnson, I might have already given some spoilers, but can you tell us why your name is synonymous with Beruli ulcer and a bit about your journey with this disease and its origins? Well, it all starts a while back when I was a brand new young physician working at Fairfield Infectious Diseases Hospital Melbourne, which is now closed. And some of my first patients had these horrible, undermined, large, slow healing or not healing ulcers. And they came from a part of Phillip Island where our family had a holiday house, which slightly sad story there was bought as a memorial to my father who died a little bit young and we used spare money from his superannuation and bought this little house. And then within a really short time, people who lived next door across the road and down the street were turning up in the hospital where I had my first senior job as a physician. So I was very interested for many direct and indirect reasons, but in particular, I was learning about molecular biology because I had a position also at the Royal Children's Hospital. I was working on a different project for a PhD, but I could see this opportunity to use this new PCR technology that was starting to cross from the world of research into the world of clinical diagnostics. So I said, well, why don't we do a PCR for mycobacterium ulcerans, but nobody had one and no one had got any information about the sequence of it, so no one knew how to do it. And I got a small research grant from the Royal Children's Hospital Research Foundation with two close colleagues, Roy Robbins-Brown, who was my PhD supervisor, and Bruce Ross, who was Dr. Bruce Ross, who was a really clever molecular scientist who knew about these new techniques. And within just a, I think it was about two weeks, Bruce had discovered an insertion sequence which is a piece of DNA copied exactly many times throughout the genome of mycobacterium ulcerans, which became the perfect target for a diagnostic test because there's about, turns out we know now, there's 250 copies per genome. And that means you get a very sensitive test. So we created a PCR based on that and started diagnosing patients just from swabs. Previously, it had been Uh, You needed culture, histology, a lot of time. You needed biopsies. But for people with ulcers now, we could just take a swab from the ulcer and directly PCR from the swab and get a very accurate diagnosis, very sensitive test, completely specific. There's no other medical medically important mycobacteria that cause this disease in humans. We published our little paper and we thought that would be the end of it. But then the WHO contacted us and said, look, there's this big problem in West Africa. We want you to join our group and come and tell us about this PCR. And very quickly it was adopted as the definitive gold standard test because really you can make a diagnosis in four hours as opposed to several weeks really for culture and without having to do a biopsy, provided an ulcer is present. If there's no ulcer, you still need a biopsy. Big problem at the time, apart from diagnosis, was how do people get it? Where do they get it from and how is it transmitted? So we know that it's transmitted in very specific locations, but no one had any idea where or how. So the obvious thing to do is go look for the bacteria in the environment where people are infected. And some others had tried for years and years unsuccessfully to do that. But with So we thought, well, why don't we try the PCR? Because the method previously used was direct culture. And we became the first people in the world to identify mycobacterium ulcerans in the environment as well as having this new diagnostic test. So those two publications together 
were why we were invited to join the WHO group. And that technology has been used by all other Baruli researchers, both for diagnosis and also for investigating environmental mode of transmission and reservoir ever since. I studied medicine in Cairns in North Queensland in Australia, and we learned about something called Daintree ulcer at the time. Then when I moved to Melbourne for my internship, I kept hearing about this Bansdale ulcer. Can you tell us if there's anything different about each of these types of ulcers and this Baruli ulcer? So these are all different names for the same, exactly the same infection. And the WHO would like us to use the term Baruli ulcer so that we, uh, for advocacy purposes. But the other thing about all these local names is it really shows the common sense of local people. They, they know that if you go near the Daintree forest, you have a risk of getting this. But if you don't go near it, if you're just in Cairns, you don't. So they called it Daintree ulcer or Mossman ulcer because of the town of Mossman nearby. Same thing with Bensdale. It was something that happened somewhere around Bensdale, but not in Melbourne, for example, although it is happening in Melbourne now, which is part of the story later. There's another name, Sikbalonga Sipik, which is from New Guinea, where the local people knew that if you lived along the the Sipik River, you had a risk of getting it, but not elsewhere, and Kumasi ulcer, and so on and so on. But it's all mycobacterium ulcer and infection. Viruli ulcer is the global term now that the WHO prefers, and we've changed the name here deliberately in Victoria because really it's it's pretty rare down in Bensdale now, but it's very common near Melbourne, so therefore it's a better name anyway. Uh, so that's the story of all the different names. What is mycobacterium and what types of skin disease does it cause? Well, there are three important mycobacterial diseases of humans my, caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis, mycobacterium leprae, and mycobacterium ulcerans. The first two are transmitted human to human and we don't need to discuss here, but they're very important in themselves. The third one, Mycobacterium ulcerans, is transmitted from the environment to a personal people. So it's different in that respect. It's not transmitted person to person. The mode of, the, or the pathogenesis, as we say, which is how does the bacteria cause this disease, is that inside each Mycobacterium ulcerans cell is a plasmid. And on that plasmid, is DNA which encodes the production of a toxin called mycolactone. And that's the very specific thing that no other humanly important mycobacteria have. That toxin is produced by mycobacterium ulcerans. It allows escape. We, I think we're pretty sure this happens, but it gets when it's when the infection starts, it's taken up by macrophages, the toxin kills the macrophage, and then it can grow. The um, toxin inhibits the immune response, so you don't see in early infections incoming inflammatory cells. You just see bland necrosis, particularly of fat cells. And it does this by causing apoptosis and necrosis directly. And the toxin we now know um, blocks up a very specific porin inside the endoplasmic reticulum of eukaryotic cells called 661, and it blocks that porin and stops cells from exporting proteins. For example, inflammatory proteins such as TNF and other cytokines produced by inflammatory cells. And the cell realizes something terribly is wrong with it because it can't produce what it's supposed to, and that triggers apoptosis and necrosis. So what you see in early infections is huge numbers of mycobacteria staining if you stain by for acid fast bacilli. And 
bland necrosis with just no inflammatory cells stretching for a very long way. And then right at the edge, you can see some inflammatory cells where the toxin concentrations become very low. So that's its little trick. Some, Probably not that long ago, evolutionarily, a mycobacterium marinum, which is a free-living mycobacteria which can cause much milder infections and lives in swimming pools and fish tanks and, and the sea, etc., picked up this plasmid. And once it had the plasmid, it then had the ability to infect probably vertebrates and maybe insects as well, using this toxin to evade the immune attack it comes under. And that, that's, that's the story of how it works. Fascinating. I happen to have seen it mostly in teenagers and children when working at the children's hospital, and also while I was working on a plastic surgery unit. So is this the age group that is most commonly affected by it? All ages are susceptible. The youngest, I think, in the world is about three weeks, and the oldest is well into their 90s. Both genders equally susceptible. In Africa, the disease burden falls particularly on young people, but that's partly because they have so many young people compared with us. A paper I wrote a few years ago based on a big outbreak at the small country town of Point Lonsdale in Victoria, there were, I think, the, um, the highest affected group by population was actually people over 75. So there may be a mild increased susceptibility in the elderly and maybe in the young as well, but I've seen it in every age group and it really just reflects who's exposed rather than any kind of targeting by age. So how soon after exposure to this bacteria might someone develop the ulcer? So that's a pretty good question and difficult to answer if most people, in fact all people, have had it historically in endemic areas. So if you don't know where it is or how it's transmitted and somebody's gets one of them, you've got no idea what the incubation period was. So there's been a few studies to try and identify that, but there's been two important ones conducted here in Victoria where we've made use of our detailed knowledge of the epidemiology. So we know it occurs in visitors and permanent residents. And through the Department of Health, we've followed up the visitors who've only been to a place once or twice and that way we can separate out and work out the incubation period. And it's got a median of about four and a half to five months. And then there's usually another month of people wondering what's wrong and getting a diagnosis. Um, so that really means it's about six months later. And that's always been one of the problems about where did you get it from? And you think, well, what happened last week? Whereas really you had to think back what happened six months ago. And because we now know that, we're getting much closer to understanding transmission. So in Victoria, which is a temperate part of the world, this tropical disease is transmitted in the summer, but it turns up in your clinic, Alvin, in the winter and the spring. <laughs> you commented on endemic locations, and we've touched on it being present in Australia, in Papua New Guinea and in Africa. Are there any other endemic locations in the world we should consider? So the two really important places in Australia are far north Queensland between Mossman and the Daintree River. And so there's a kind of a standing joke in our little research group that it seems to start at the Mossman post office and go north to the river. And if you go to Port Douglas, which is just a bit south of Mossman, but north of Cairns, it doesn't seem to be there. But then people from Port Douglas, some don't go touring up and perhaps become susceptible there. The next big place is the Mornington Peninsula and the Bellarine Peninsula near Melbourne, which is extraordinary in itself. And it's only recently been here. It's arrived recently. And now we have it in the inner north suburbs. So we have it in Essendon, Strathmore, 
Brunswick West, and we know transmission is occurring there. And we're expecting to see it in other parts of urban Melbourne, which is another really strange thing about this tropical disease that normally occurs in the developing world. Just to interrupt, I, I think uh, I did refer, Dr. Sarah Brennan in my clinic referred someone to you who caught the infection, and, and this person lives in the northern suburbs yes. very recently. Yes. Yeah. Now, in the world, it's been particularly important in West Africa. So that's Ghana, Benin, Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, now Nigeria, Cameroon. But it's also had got this fascinating um, kind of waxing and waning over long periods. So the term Baruli, the name, it was a place in, in Uganda. Now, that place has disappeared due to political changes, but the disease also seems to have disappeared from Uganda. And it was quite important there in the 1970s and then somehow moved into West Africa and may be declining there, although that's debated. We know that in Victoria, in Australia, that it's definitely increasing. We're expecting a real bumper year this year. But even within our local areas, we see it decline as well as start and increase. So I first started working on it in the early 90s at Phillip Island, and it's been very uncommon. For, in fact, there's not been any local people with Borreliosa now for several years, even though that was where it was really hot at one point. So this is really interesting, and also we don't quite understand yet. I've only seen about five cases of it in my five years of working as a doctor in Australia, and only one of those required inpatient management. How common is it here in Australia? Well, the answer depends on where you are. So it does not occur at all, really, in South Australia, hardly in New South Wales, not in Tasmania, not in most of Queensland, and in Victoria, not in most of Victoria. But um, within parts of Victoria, it can be really common. So at its peak at Point Lonsdale... In 2011, the incidence was one, uh, 770 per 100,000, which is really quite high. Across Victoria now, it's about six per 100,000 per year. But really, that's not a, a fair number because most of Victoria is not susceptible. It's only the people living in the endemic areas. So it can become quite common. And at one point at Point Lonsdale, in the days when surgery was the main treatment, I think it was 4% of the permanent residents aged over 75 had had surgery. So that can give you an idea of what it can, how it can be in a local area. Now, back in the, uh, the times of the millennium drought, it got really uncommon. I think there was 17 cases in one of the lowest years when there was hardly any rainfall. And we got over 300 in 2018. And we're on track now here to have more than 300 this year, 2022. And they'll be mostly acquired on the Mornington Peninsula, the Bellarine Peninsula, the Inner North, and only a very few from places like Gippsland and only probably only a handful up in far north Queensland. It can also happen occasionally in Japan but from a, and in French Guiana and South America. So there are little other foci, but we probably have the highest incidence in the world here now. So it's kind of Baruli central. <laughs> so there are various theories about how Baruli is transmitted and the source of some controversy. I remember hearing you talk about possums. Can you explain what the latest theory is and, and whether our furry nocturnal friends might be implicated? Well, I think it's getting now beyond just being a theory. I think it's a hypothesis that's been around now for a while, which has been tested several times, and we're now finding it, it is reliably, reproducibly accurate, I think. So the model that we've developed is that first and foremost, mycobacterium ulcerans causes outbreaks in possums. So particularly, but not exclusively, ringtail possums. 
And so when you find a new focus of humans with Borrelia ulcer and you go to the places they live and you pick up possum excreta from the street and test it, you frequently find highly, strongly PCR-positive possum excreta. We first recognised that at Point Lonsdale. So the next question we asked ourselves back then, this is in the uh, working with my colleague Janet Fife and others, uh, and we're at Point Lonsdale and we found at that point with it, when there was that very high incidence of human disease that about every second possum excreta sample you picked up on the ground was not only a little bit positive but really strongly positive. So with another colleague, Kath Handerside, who is a zoologist and others with Janet, I mentioned already, we got, a, got permits and we trapped possums and tested them. And we the, the idea was to see whether it was something happening to their excreta on the ground or whether it was something about the possums themselves. And we caught 42 possums and found completely to our surprise that a quarter of them actually had Borrelia ulcer. You could see the ulcers on them. You could take a, a swab and see them by acid fast stain. You could PCR and find that that was M. ulcerans and culture them. So we were able to demonstrate beyond doubt that possums had the disease and about half of them were excreting it and about a quarter of them actually had the disease. So that was a big finding. And so what happens now is with other research teams that, you know, we've got further funding to uh, investigate in other areas, we find exactly the same thing. So if you go to the Mornington Peninsula where humans are getting also you find the possums have it as well. And we haven't in Australia found the opposite or in southern Australia where humans are getting it and the possums don't have it. So it seems that it's a zoonosis, that in other words, there's an outbreak which occurs and spreads within possums, and there are very high densities of possums living around human habitation near Melbourne, as I think we all know. And if you look on the ground, there's kilograms of feces. That's the story, I think. Humans living near a silent epidemic happening up in the trees, and we become the accidental spillover host. I think there may be other things happening, but that's definitely happening and probably the primary driver of the human cases that we're seeing. Then the next question is how are they connected? So you don't see people with Borreliosis on the top of their head much and you don't see it with them on the, on the soles of their feet. So children running to the beach are frequently getting little sticks through their feet. So it seems to be it's round the ankles, round the elbows, round the knees, round the backs of the calves. And we've done a study showing where the most likely location of, of more than 600 cases are, and it's really the places that mosquitoes bite you. So the other part of the research we've done is trap mosquitoes, and we've trapped many tens of thousands of them now. In our first program, we were able to show that with about 42,000 mosquitoes that the probability of getting Borreliosa on the Bellarine Peninsula by town was directly proportional to the probability of finding a PCR-positive mosquito in your town. So very close correlation. And now on the Mornington Peninsula, we find reliably year after year that uh, the particular species of mosquitoes, actually called Aedes nodoscriptus, has about 1% positivity. Now, that doesn't sound much, but that's actually higher than you find with other known mosquito-transmitted infections. So it's pretty, it's coming together very well. And the possums have it. The humans get it on parts of the body that mosquitoes bite, not on parts of the body that are primarily in contact with the environment directly. And we've now got two case control studies, one published and one about to be published, which show that your risk is reduced by using mosquito repellent. So I think the story is pretty mature now. It's a, it's a zoonosis, an outbreak in possums, 
and the connector between the possums and the humans is mosquitoes. Exactly how that works, we're not sure. And then, of course, people always say to me, well, there's no possums in Africa. Is the story the same there? And they're right, there are no possums in Africa. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not sure if the story's right there. There's a lot of little animals that have been chopped up to try and find an analogue, and that hasn't so far been successful. But in far north Queensland, we have identified in the faeces of bandicoots emulsorans in the same concentration. And there's one publication from another group showing that you can find it in mosquitoes as well. So perhaps it's the same story there, maybe different in Africa. It's very clearly what's going on down here in Victoria, which then gives you something very specific you can do, which is protect yourself against mosquito bites. Ever wondered what the Skin Health Institute does? At the Skin Health Institute, based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients, and the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers, specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma, and are recognised globally for our medical research. We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au forward slash patient referrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. I've mostly seen it in patients who present to the emergency department or to the plastic surgery clinic with a non-healing ulcer, usually without a clear mechanism of injury. I remember one of these patients thought she had developed this ulcer from friction from a new pair of hiking boots. How do you find it usually presents clinically? Most people either can't remember, and we've discussed that because it was six months ago usually by the time you see them in the clinic, or they have a theory which is wrong. <laughs> and the theory which is wrong has been disturbing researchers for years and years. So I remember I gave a presentation at think it was at a, I won't say which town, but it was a progress association town in a church hall and there were lots of older people there. And I went really carefully through the incubation period and how you have to think back six months. And at the question time, somebody put out their hand and said, well, I know what it is. I was pruning my lemon tree and the next week I got a Borrelia ulcer on my finger. So it's it's tricky and really it's too long ago and recall bias is too influenced by what you believe or what you've read before. That's to try to get to that. We've used case control studies to try to quantitate that. And the risk factors we found are that if you report a lot of mosquito bites, your risk is increased. And if you report using insect repellent, it's reduced. They match the lovely symmetrical findings. And so it's, and then other things that you might expect, like gardening in our first case control study, fell out. They were univariate. In the univariate analysis, they came out as risk factors, but when you did the multivariate, the two remaining things were mosquito bites on your legs and uh, use of insect repellent, and they worked that in inversely. So one protected you and one increased your risk. Now, there is another finding which comes up that people who uh, clean and cover uh, cuts and abrasions outside may have a lower risk, so we always recommend that too. 
But that suggests that getting it directly on your skin can set up an infection. And there is a quite quite interesting experiment that was done by a group in the United States who really opposed our mosquito hypothesis. And they wanted to show it was just a waste of time. You didn't need to add anything else. It was just direct contact with the environment. So they set up this model with a hairless guinea pig and they, under anaesthetic, of course, abraded its skin. And then they put increasing concentrations of cultured emulsorans on the skin up to like you know, huge concentrations and nothing happened. So you, they weren't able to get an infection just by contacting even a braided skin, but it, they always got one in the control by injecting it. So it has to be injected into the skin rather than added onto the surface, which fits perfectly with mosquitoes. I've heard that they are typically described as an undermined ulcer. Can you explain what this means? So really, we think of it as a skin infection, but it's actually an infection of the subcutaneous layer. And you see it on the skin as a doctor when there's already a much bigger spreading infection in the subcutaneous layer. So I think I often talk to patients and say it's like a donut. So you see the center of the donut is the ulcer, but the real infection is the the main part of a donut and that's further away and much bigger than you think and it's in the subcutaneous layer. And so what's going happening down there is that the bacteria from using that toxin are inhibiting the immune response, causing necrosis of fat cells and spreading laterally. And then the skin's dying partly from being undermined and disconnected and perhaps directly from the toxin as well, but mainly from being undermined and disconnected. So you can put a swab in the ulcer and almost lose it in some cases because there's so much destruction of the subcutaneous fat layer that you didn't initially appreciate. Whereas with some other ulcers, like an ischemic ulcer, it's sort of punched out and you don't get that effect. So it's one way you can helps you to think of the diagnosis. And I do remember a young boy I saw who had a very delayed diagnosis who for he used to amuse his friends by he had this huge ulcer on his leg and he could make his skin go flat, flat, flat just to make them laugh because there was so much undermining. I think it's time for our first skin tip. M. ulcerans infections typically present as an undermined, non-healing ulcer without a clear mechanism of injury in patients who have been to an endemic area. So you've touched on this presenting in patients who have travelled to an endemic area. Does that mean people who have stayed in one of those areas for a month or two or a week or even just a couple of days? Well, most people go on holiday for a few days. Um, So it's been difficult with very few cases back when it wasn't very common to sort that out. But now the cases are so common. If you see a lot of patients, you get those fantastic anecdotes. And I've had a patient who literally was only in an endemic area for one hour. It was a woman who went with her husband and son to look at a car that the son was going to buy down on the Mornington Peninsula. So she knows the exact date. She had a Google map. She knew where she was. She sat on, it was a hot night. She sat outside on the nature strip while the son and father uh, and her husband haggled over the car then then they bought the car and then they went back to Melbourne. So that was a single hour of exposure. So whatever the mode of transmission is, it's something that can happen in a very short time, even though more typically it's longer longer exposure because of people's behaviour. Just coming back to how it can present, I once came across a 20 millimetre skin lesion present for three months with pearly rolled edges and a central ulcer. As a GP, I thought that this was a BCC and I got a real surprise when the histopathology came back as mycobacterium ulcerans. 
Is this something you come across often? Well, in older people, I mean, older people often have the leisure time and, and the money to have holiday houses down in these endemic areas. And quite a few of them have skin damage from solar exposure as well. And I've certainly seen individual cases where it was a VCC by histology and emulsorans at the same time. But I think, but usually, so I think they can be nondescript. And when the risk is high, which it is at the moment in certain areas, it's best to consider beryllium your differential diagnosis, even if it's not typical looking. And with the ulcer presentation, eight out of 10 of them do present as ulcers, but two out of 10 are not ulcers yet. They're plaques or occasionally we get this quite severe cellulitic presentation, which can look like staphylococcal cellulitis. The patient can actually have a fever. They present with swelling of a limb. They get put on intravenous flucloxacillin, for example, and they may temporarily settle down, but then not completely recover. And that's been missed a few times with quite bad results where you end up you know, losing a lot of skin by the time the real diagnosis is made. So keep that in mind. Then the strangely behaving cellulitis, which isn't getting better than the normal quick way you expect, and the, the weird looking skin lesion, which is a plaque rather than an ulcer. In that case, you will need a biopsy because you can't make the diagnosis just by swabbing intact skin. But, you know, I've certainly seen, I've got a photo on my website of a person who does, who runs in the Mornington area and he had this plaque over his ankle and he took this picture very early. You couldn't possibly have made a diagnosis. And then four weeks later, it was a much bigger plaque and then there was clearly something wrong and a biopsy confirmed that it was probably awesome. It turns out to be one of the best PCR tests I've ever worked with. And the reasons are, as we discussed right up at the beginning, there are many targets within mycobacterium ulcerans. So there's about 200 plus copies of the target, which is IS-2404. And also because of the toxin and the absence of an immune response, there's many more bacteria than you normally see in an infection. So when you look at histology, you see tens of thousands of bacteria in great big clumps. So there's lots of cells and lots of targets within each cell. Now, we do have false negatives at times when people do bad collections, so they sweep it over the skin. You can't diagnose it that way. If, and if You need to be down into that subcutaneous layer. So if you've got a, an ulcer, that's easy because it's already accessed, and you just need to get run, run your swab around the undermined edge and make sure there's biological tissue on the swab. If you send that for... Emulsorans PCR, make sure it's emulsorans PCR, not just mycobacteria. So is there an ideal way of performing a PCR to avoid false negatives? The labs know what you're talking about in Victoria, and that test is useful. If Even if negative, it's a very good negative test, as well as a very reliable positive test. So where it's gone wrong is where untrained thology collectors have just sort of waved a swab near an unformed ulcer. And I've I've had a couple of patients referred to me where the GPs really knew what it was because they lived in the endemic areas, had done a swab themselves, but had been negative. And then a couple of weeks later, I've just used saline and rubbed the, the sort of eschar off the top and got some good biological material on it and got a really good positive. So that so that it's a little subtlety there, but it's by and large a good swab from an ulcer will be negative if it's not, and then the, if, if it is, complexities come when you've got plaques or you haven't quite got an ulcer yet. So if a patient has a plaque rather than an ulcer, would you suggest performing a biopsy rather than the swab? Yes. You, you have to sample with your swab the subcutaneous layer. That's where the bacteria are. So with an ulcer, which is eight out of 10 presentations, that's easy. But with the plaque, which can be quite extensive before an ulcer develops, 
you do need to get down into that layer, so you will need a biopsy. And so, yes, I definitely recommended that. And the, But the PCR can be used on that as well, and it's very fast and accurate as well. And is that generally a punch biopsy you'd suggest then? It's got to go down into the subcutaneous layer. That's the key thing. Now, if it's a tiny punch biopsy right at the edge, you know, statistically you might miss the bacteria because they, they do appear in clumps, but I haven't actually had that experience myself. So make sure it's a decent biopsy or, if it, you know, a couple of sites and make sure you're getting subcutaneous layer in, in the specimen. I think it's time for another skin tip. PCR from dry or saline-soaked swab from the undermined edge of the ulcer is the gold standard test for diagnosis of mycobacterium ulcerans. You touched on it only taking four hours for a result to come back on the PCR. Does that mean we should be able to expect same-day results? The test itself only takes a few hours to run, but because of its nature, it's it's usually batched. So most laboratories do them two or three times a week. But yes, you should be able to get a result within a few days for sure. Both confirmed and probable cases of M. ulcerans are notifiable in the state of Victoria, but not nationally. Why is that? I'd certainly first of all say that you can make a diagnosis, so notify it when it's confirmed. It's it's too much work to do the other. That uh, notification by on suspicion is very important for some things like measles, which spread very quickly, but it's not important for this condition. That's my private little tip there. So when you've confirmed a case, though, it needs to be notified legally. It was made notifiable in the state of Victoria from January 2004. And this has really helped us get a, a real picture of, of how it's changing over time and how it's the trend is definitely up and up and up. So very useful. Data is collected in Queensland through their mycobacterium reference laboratory. but So they do have laboratory notification and they collect those data, but it's not a requirement legally for the clinician to notify. But here in Victoria, we, like I said, we, this is Baruli Central. We have probably the highest incidence in the world and it's quite an important public health issue now. Now for the big question, how is M. ulcerans treated? Well, there was a time when surgery was regarded as the only effective therapy. And because relapse rates were high, extensive surgery was performed to give clear margins of resection. Fortunately, that has now been completely switched 180 degrees. And we know that relatively simple antibiotics, which predominantly rifampicin combined with clarithromycin for eight weeks, is extremely effective in killing all the bacteria, therefore getting rid of any risk of relapse and now we've gone from really a surgical only to a medical only or predominant approach. And that has revolutionized this combined with earlier and earlier diagnosis through you know, public engagement like you're doing with this podcast, getting the message out means that doctors can make the diagnosis early. The treatment's you know, much, much simpler and safe compared with what it used to be. So I was at a public meeting where there was various things being discussed recently, but one of the local GPs says, look, this is a trivial disease now. Why are you making so much fuss about it? And from his point of view, that was reasonable because he was seeing you know, walk, people walking across the the room to the, um, to the examination couch. He could recognize it, make the diagnosis and treat it quickly. So that's the ideal state. And so it's not really the major disaster that it used to be. It doesn't kill you. It's diagnosable and curable and treatable with antibiotics. We still get cases where it's it's missed for a long time or it's in an unusual situation, but even then the same thing applies. The problem, though, is that if you give a person with a significant ulcer, you know, a typical one a few centimetres across antibiotics for eight weeks, 
it doesn't look any better at the end of treatment and may may even look worse. And so if, if you don't know that it's effective based on really good research carried out in Africa in randomized control studies plus lots of clinical experience here, which we've partly published by various groups here. So we know that we can kill the bacteria, but the healing can take a long time. So the median time to heal is 14 to 16 weeks, and healing continues for up to a year after you stop the antibiotics. So what what is the indication for surgical management? Look, I used to, I always work closely with a surgical colleague with, with significant large lesions. We don't other now with the smaller ones. And my colleague has worked in Geelong and got plenty of experience down there from the Bellarine Peninsula outbreak, and she's more and more conservative. So usually we both look at the patient, we treat them with antibiotics, and we look at the patient, and we look at the patient, and we use, you know, they discharge a lot, these lesions, and dressings are important, but usually we get a, the best result from minimalist approach so often nothing sometimes some of these big plaques with a lot of liquefied fat underneath she might incise and drain but you know removing skin and doing split skin grafts it's all out of, it's all old-fashioned it's not we don't think that's needed anymore you've mentioned some pretty hefty antibiotics to treat these can the infection be managed in an outpatient setting by a GP or should we involve an infectious diseases physician within the management? Look, I think it can be managed by general practitioners. And one of the models that I've developed is I work in partnership. So they manage, diagnose the case, manage the case, and I'm available for support. Now, that's interesting because 10 years ago, I used to be referred people with ulcers and I'd make the diagnosis in my own clinic. But now I'm pretty much referred people with a diagnosis and now more increasingly with a diagnosis and on the correct treatment. So, you know, I think it's it's becoming a general practitioner disease. Rifampicin uh, is now on the PBS for Borreliosa and you only need it for eight weeks. So clarithromycin's not. With private scripts, they're not that expensive. And I had a patient who was coming all the way from somewhere in Montrose, I think, in the Dandenongs, to see me to get his hospital script of rifampicin. And when he looked at the cost of the petrol, the car parking, he was better to just buy it through Chemist Warehouse <laughs> where he was. So I think it's it's potentially a GP manageable condition. If you're not used to it, though, it's got these little tricks. And one of them is paradoxical reactions, which I think you've got a question about. Well, I do. <laughs> Thanks, Alvin. <laughs> well, what exactly is paradoxical reaction to treatment? So paradox means that when you're supposed to be getting better, you're getting worse. That's the paradox. And that is also one of the things that undid previous researchers in Africa because they put people on treatment and they'd seem to get worse, which led to this thing about surgery is the only thing that works. Now we know that what's happening is that the antibiotics cause the bacteria to die and to stop releasing its toxin. When the toxin levels fall, in come all the inflammatory cells, all these your own cells that should have been looking after you but were caught napping because the toxin interfered with their response. So you get this big human-induced inflammatory response to all these dead and dying mycobacteria. And so, and the risk of that increases with the size of the lesion. So we always warn our patients that this is going to happen. Some sometimes it doesn't, but it can happen any time during the eight weeks of treatment, and it can even happen afterwards. But usually, it's just something that happens, and we manage it just expectantly. Some of my colleagues will give steroids at that point. Not so keen on that myself, but we don't have any evidence either way to say which is the right approach. 
and then it just settles down and you just carry on as if it didn't happen. Of course, the differential diagnosis there is secondary infection with something like staph, so you can get a bit confused. But then if they're still on treatment, rifampicin and clarithromycin are pretty broad-spectrum antibiotics anyway, so it's not an issue during treatment. And so I think it's usually with experience you can manage that. So that's another issue if you're not ready for that and the patient isn't ready for that and if they're not ready for the fact that they're not going to be better at eight weeks, then you start getting doctor shopping and complaints and wanting to see the specialist then. So that may be the, the partnership model might be the best approach. Coming back to rifampicin and clarithromycin, are there any special considerations with prescribing these? Well, first of all, they've been extensively used for eight weeks together in African studies, and there have been very few serious side effects. The population studied in Africa tends to be young, so we do have the increased problem of older people tend to have more drug intolerance. So the first thing to consider is rifampicin is a very dirty drug. It interacts with a whole lot of other medication, um, thyroid treatment with uh, anti-cholesterol drugs and so on. So you need to make sure you know the drug list. Clarithromycin can cause um, QT prolongation in a subset of people. So I always do an ECG before I start and then an ECG a couple of days or three or four days later to check that they're not one of the small group who gets a big change in their QT. I've seen that only once, and by the time I detected it, the person was having palpitations. So that's a kind of, you know, it's probably pretty uncommon. But by and large, the most common thing I've had is about four out of five people that don't even know they're on them, except their urine always goes orange from the rifampicin, so you have to warn them about that. But one out of five get nausea and they have trouble and you have to switch it so that the rifampicin is in, in the evening before they go to bed and some, you know use other drugs, uh, anti-nausea drugs, but then you've got to watch the QT if you're working with clarithromycin. So sometimes we do have trouble and I've used heat, adjuvant heat therapy in some people, but most of the time, practically speaking, eight weeks of rifampicin and clarithromycin is curative is pretty easy to take, really. Remembering that people with TB have to take it for six months. The dose in adults is 600 milligrams a day of rifampicin, given as a single dose, and 500 milligrams twice a day of clarithromycin. They're usually 250 milligram tablets, so it's usually two tablets twice a day of clarithromycin and two tablets once a day of rifampicin, because that usually comes as 300 milligrams. And there are liquids available for children. There's a little trick there too that children need lots of bottles to get through their medication and if they get charged the dispensing fee for each lot of bottles they can end up with a big bill. So you have to try and intercede with the pharmacist to protect people with lower incomes in particular who have children with broly ulcer but it's just as effective in that group and it's been well studied as well. I find now that it's with with the pre-education of the patient with a very clear patient education an information sheet which has pictures of the tablets and the bottles and what can happen. You explained before that the wound takes longer to heal than the actual infection takes to resolve. So do we actually need to do a swab to ensure that the infection has cleared or can we just assume it is after the eight-week treatment? So when I say the infection's resolved, I mean the bacteria are dead, but their bodies are still visible if you do an acid-fast smear and the PCR will still be positive because it detects DNA, not living or dead DNA. And mycobacteria have waxy coats and they can have a long life even after they're dead. 
So that that's really a trap for young players, actually, is doing a swab at the end and finding it's positive and then starting them again, and they end up on endless cycles of treatment. So in a person who's a normal host, their immune system's normal, I'm very confident to use eight weeks. In people who are significantly immunosuppressed, I sometimes go for three months, just another month. Not sure that that's really evidence-based. And then I'm confident to stop. And then I don't keep checking. I look at it clinically. The situation should resolve slowly clinically. I do have a colleague who's experimenting with giving just four weeks for very small lesions. And so far, he's got some good results. So that's another option, but we don't have the evidence there. We've clearly got evidence for eight weeks. Another question about treatment. Should these be covered for the duration of treatment? Look, there's two aspects to that. There's could this spread around the household? Now, the answer to that is we've we've never really never seen that. So we think that people don't get infected from each other, even though there are huge numbers of bacteria in the discharging fully formed ulcer. And it seems that if two people in the same family have got it, it's because they've got it at the same place from the same mode of transmission. So that's one part of it. Once I always say, you know, once you've been on treatment for a couple of weeks, sure, you can go to the local swimming pool, but you don't want people to see that horrible thing. And maybe it's not a good idea to get water in it. So I would definitely cover it from that point of view. Then they can um, and frequently do discharge huge amounts of liquid fat as as they're going through their treatment process. And that's really good. I always say the more, more of that there is, the better. Don't fear that. That's a sign that it's all coming out and it's draining. And so you sometimes need an absorbent dressing just to cover that off. And I had a patient flying internationally who had so much discharge, he had to go into the um, Qantas lounge in, in Singapore and redress himself because it had soaked through in just in the time he'd got from Melbourne to Singapore. So, you know, it can be quite a problem. But then once it starts to dry out, we don't really have any evidence that anything's better than anything else. So patients talk about honey. Okay, sure. That's fine. It probably works. We use particular gauze called Sorbact, S-O-R-B-A-C-T, which is this green gauze, which seems to be quite good at sticking. You put that in the base of the ulcer and there's some evidence that it electrostatically removes dead bacteria. And because they're mycobacteria, they're very immunogenic. And the more you get that liquid out and the more bacteria they're out, the better. So I think you know the science for dressings isn't clear. The requirement to cover it's not really there. Um, but practically speaking, if you've got a discharging thing on your leg and you're going to work, you do need to cover it because it becomes socially difficult. It's time for another skin tip. First line treatment for adults with M ulcerans infection is rifampicin 600 milligrams once daily and clarithromycin 500 milligrams twice a day for 56 days. Now, we've learned a lot about M. ulcerans, and I'm very interested to hear what the potential complications are. I guess we don't see them that much anymore, but what, what can happen if, if it's left untreated? Well, Beruli also attracted attention from the WHO because in West Africa at its peak in the 1980s, there were terrible complications. People lost enormous amounts of skin. They often healed naturally by secondary intention. So somehow or other, they shut the infection down, but then they would have their whole arm ankylosed. So they couldn't work in the field or their leg was useless or they'd lose genitals or an eye. So it, it, it ha- untreated, it can be very destructive, although usually not fatal. And there were some cases of osteomyelitis, osteomyelitis as well. In Victoria, we have seen 
um, cases like that. Um, but it's increasingly uncommon because the disease is becoming more common. So paradoxically, people are getting more and more familiar with it. The diagnosis is being made earlier and antibiotic treatment is so effective. However, one of the measures that the WHO uses of success of a local program is is healing with or without disability. And the definition of that is somebody who's got you know limited restriction or the the use of their limb is limited by the scarring that's happened, that would be a bad outcome. And we did used to see people with extensive scarring, pain in their scar, reduced joint movement from contractures around the joint, but we we rarely see that now. So most people get 100% cure. Well, all people get 100% cure. It's a curable infection. And pretty much everyone gets a complete um, recovery without disability, and that's been particularly helped because we don't need to rely so much on extensive surgery, which had that big margin of resection as well. Are there any concluding remarks you'd like to share with us, Paul? Think of the diagnosis. If you think of the diagnosis, you'll be fine. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Paul. That was incredibly informative and very useful. So this concludes our episode on mycobacterium ulcerans. Thanks once again for coming and sharing your expertise with us. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Many people have contributed to unravelling the Barooli story in Victoria. I would like to especially thank Paul Flood, John Heyman and Mark Beach for the initial outbreak work at Phillip Island. Bruce Ross, Francis Opadizano, May Smith, John Heyman and Roy Robbins-Brown for the initial work on the Barooli PCR. Tim Stinier joined me as a PhD student in 1996 and has gone on to become an internationally renowned microbial geneticist, Barooli researcher and close friend. Tim is the leader of our collaborative research group. Janet Fife and Caroline Lavender played key roles in the improvement of the PCR and the understanding of the emerging epidemiology of Barooli in Victoria. Joe Azulis trapped the first PCR-positive mosquitoes at Point Lonsdale. Janet was the first author of our 2010 paper describing the possum mosquito reservoir transmission model. Rosemary Lester, former Chief Health Officer of Victoria, was pivotal in the story. Rosemary trusted us, saw our potential, and quietly ensured we had just enough funding to get by for the years it took to generate the possum mosquito model, often working in our evenings and weekends. Dan O'Brien and Deb Freeman have played key roles in systematically improving and simplifying Barooli treatment for patients in Victoria. A special note to thank the late John Bunteen, plastic surgeon, who together with John Heyman supported me and encouraged me in the early years. John Bunteen was an enthusiastic early adopter of the all-antibiotic approach to treatment. My great thanks to many others besides. The road goes on. We would also like to thank our guest and producer, Associate Professor Alvin Chong, the Skin Health Institute. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly suggest you see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast. Thank you.